Hello and welcome to the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, a philosopher and postdoctoral fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This podcast is part of a mini-series on the future of work, guest hosted by myself and James Hughes, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the Associate Provost for Institutional Research, Assessment, and Planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In this series, we'll dive deep into some of the most pressing topics of our time regarding work, the influence of automation on the future of work, the appeal and purpose of work, its connection to meaningful living, the harms of the work ethic, and the idea of a shortened work week. We'll also tackle the issue of alienation in the workplace and discuss innovative policy proposals that could help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of 21st century work. We're happy to have you join us on the Ethics in Action podcast. We're joined today by Scott Santons, who is probably the most well-known advocate for universal basic income in the United States. And this is, uh, by the way, a podcast uh, from the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Alex Stubbs and I, Jay Hughes, are co-hosting a short series on the future of work for this podcast series. And uh, we thought Scott would be a great person just because the, the idea of UBI has been so closely linked to the technological uh, unemployment question, the automation question. But Scott, um, tell us how you came first came to this uh, agenda and how you became a lobbyist for this. Yeah, it's a uh, funny, it kind of came, uh, it's kind of come full circle uh, since when I first got into this. Um, I got into this back in 2013 and uh, this was even, uh, it came under my radar before uh, anyone was really, uh, really talking about the concerns about automation, and it was actually through this, um, through a discussion on Reddit about how people weren't talking about automation, but mm -hmm. how like we really should be talking about it because of the implications and how fast things are going. And um, uh, from that discussion, uh, I, I was introduced to this book uh, called Mana by Marshall Brain. And it was a, like a science, short science fiction novella uh, that kind of painted this picture of like a, a kind of a forked future where we can go one way or go the other way. And uh, one way definitely seemed like the bad way to go. And one way certainly seemed like a lot better way, kind of like a Star Trek versus uh, Hunger Games kind of situation. <laughs> and um, that author um, supported uh, the idea of a basic income in order to get down that path that we would prefer. And so I was very curious to learn more about this. And uh, so I started looking it up, started looking into, learned about the history of it. I didn't know about all the various um, experiments that had been done in the 70s. I didn't know about the more recent experiments. Uh, so it was really fascinating by the evidence as someone who's very like evidence-based and I care about science and and um, the data. And, and I was just fascinated to learn that there had already been like a lot of experiments that had been done. They already knew a lot. And uh, I was just fascinated to to see the, the even the political history of this and how like Nixon had 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 uh, proposed like a, a version of this um, back in 70, 71, where it passed the House and, and not the Senate. So it was pretty close, but we didn't get it. 
and uh, I was very interested in learning about just the various philosophy, uh, philosophical arguments behind it, and how even Thomas Paine back in the late 1700s was talking about a version of this. And uh, so just like this really rich history. And then I was really interested to learn just even the details of the existing welfare system and like how many people fall right through it, the impacts of the details of the existing system and how much better UBI could be. So like the more I learned in, the more I learned about this, the more I thought that this is actually a really important idea, not just for automation, but from the aspect of it's just a better way of doing things. Um, the, the evidence is behind it, the strong philosophical arguments are behind it besides that. And I just thought that this was so important, I needed to focus on it. So that's what I've been doing ever since. I crowdfunded my own basic income uh, in 2015, started that process, and uh, I've been essentially using a basic income to focus and communicate about basic income ever since. And yeah, now here we are now where you're, you're I basically just feel a people's suddenly... lobbyist, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I'm essentially a lobbyist for the, for the people and trying to really get those uh, um, the arguments out there, the information out there for people to understand this uh, deeper, but also like more simply. Uh, I thought the big problem when I first got into this was just that there was so many academic papers, like so much you know, stuff that no one's going to read a 50-page academic study kind of thing. And so I felt that there was, um, there was a, a hole that needed to be filled as far as some kind of communication that people could share and understand and um and pass on that wasn't getting done so things have changed very quickly over the last five six years um covid uh raised the profile of ubi significantly but at the same time the labor market has tightened and so it's harder. I am. I still firmly believe that technological unemployment is an inevitability. But um, I'm cognizant of the fact that people like me have been wrong for 200 years. So it's harder to make the argument that technological unemployment has happened. And I don't think it really. There's evidence yet that it has. But um, the arguments for UBI seem to be going gangbusters between the basic income supports that we got during COVID. And also the automation anxiety that's happening now. So, are you? You're, I feel you. You probably feel that it's on the upswing, right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I, I would say too that, like, part of looking into this and, and learning um, uh, just uh, the past decades of of you know what has happened. Like, I, I think part of the challenge in 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 the impacts of automation are that. People kind of think of this as like a, like oh, there's not automation unless there's like a robot like working next to me or like in my office or something, and then like that kind of like feels like it's doing like someone's work and that job's gone or whatever, and that it doesn't exist otherwise. And I think uh, the impact that we've been seeing is that um, there's been a transformation in the labor market that's happened over the last few decades, and I think it's contributed to the decoupling of productivity from wages. And I think part of that is that, you know, people were displaced from certain jobs. Let's say, you know, you look at like a, a car manufacturing kind of job, um, like back in the days, like the old like Ford factory or Chevy factory or something that it would have like a ton more people. And now there's just not as many. So then did those people end up like completely unemployed and unable to find a job? Well, of course not, because they needed to find another job. And so the question is, 
did those people find like a better job or a worse job or something similar? And I think the evidence shows that most of that has been like this growth of jobs in the low skill side of the spectrum. And then there's been some growth at the top, um, but really it's kind of been like this coring out of the middle. And I think that we're going to continue to see that. Um, although I think that uh, what AI is capable of is kind of more of like the knowledge work kind of stuff. So it'll be slightly different from like automating away a manufacturing worker. Um, but I think that in general, we're going to keep seeing that kind of polarization. And so it's not like people are going to be entirely unemployed and able to find jobs. It's that what are the jobs that they can find? How do those compare to the jobs that they had? And I think that we need to focus on like not only um, helping people, you know, re-educate, find new skills uh, in order to find like better jobs, but also to understand that as we automate more, then we're going to need to make sure that we maintain spending power so that people can actually spend money uh, in a consumer economy since we're 70% consumer economy, then that's part of the fuel. Like that's part of the fuel of job creation. And we want to make sure that people can keep spending in order to create those jobs. And if we don't do that, then it's going to be a lot bigger of a polarization impact. So I think that's part of it too. Yeah. So um, I want to get into some of the details of your proposals of uh, UBI and sort of thinking about maybe left versus right UBI proposals. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this, the question of automation. You know, as Jay said, that, you know, automation talk isn't new. Um, um, and, you know, I think it's somewhat of an area of contention, particularly how it's reported popularly. Um, but, you know, the emergence of GPT-4 and all of the iterations that we're going to get after it, I think have sort of reignited people's fears uh, in a different way, maybe, um, because now we're starting to see, as you mentioned, Scott, sort of the knowledge economy uh, jobs sort of at risk now. So I wonder, I wonder if you want to say something about, you know, the emergence of GPT-4 and other generative tools um, and whether or not you think this is a kind of qualitative difference between previous forms of AI and automation um, and, and what you think that has to do with its relationship with uh, UBI proposals. Yeah, so we've definitely automated this kind of work before. You know, it's not like it's unheard of in regards to, you know, let's say a room full of people that were all on typewriters, you know, and like, you know, we saw all sorts of these pictures of like, that was a common thing. Like there was a lot of people doing this stuff. And now you just, you could, you could have a lot fewer people doing that when it came to spreadsheets and and all the different um, software that came out that simplified this down. So it's not like those kinds of workers were never impacted, but I do think that this is going to be a a large impact like that and relatively fast. And I, I think that usually it kind of takes longer, but this is, you know, I've already seen the initial studies of, of, of uh, people, you know, using um, ChatGPT and, and similar, uh, tools and you're already seeing this, you know, significant boost in productivity. So it's really just a matter of how long it takes for others to start using this. And and this is also like where uh, I think there's some, you know, confusion where people think, they, people think oh well, you know, you're going to automate certain forms of of tasks, not like entire jobs, but certain portions of jobs. 
and they'll be just be more productive. Like let's say they're 15, 20, 30% more productive or something. And, but then those jobs still exist. Okay. Well, great. But then that still depends on demand. Like if there's not demand for a hundred jobs that are more productive, then you could reduce the total number of jobs. And that can even be not so much firing people, but it could be just less hiring than you would do in a situation where that technology didn't exist. So I think that we're going to see, you know, fewer job openings um, and, and just due to a higher, much more um, productive labor force. And we need to have, you know, a system in place uh, in order to handle that. And, you know, so right now, sure, like we're in a situation where, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. We witnessed a labor shortage. People will still argue that there's a labor shortage, that like, the labor market's very tight. And you know, we're it's even welcome right now. Like bring in the robots. You know, there's people who can't find uh, employers who can't find people to fill positions. And if they can have a machine or software that can that can do that or help their existing employees do more, then great. And so at first that will be great. Like you know that will actually push against inflation. Like this kind of thing is a deflationary um, phenomenon. And so uh, right now it'll be positive impacts. Um, but I think that's going to keep going and we're going to keep going past like the inflationary targets that we have. And it's going to continue being deflationary. And we're going to have people who are, you know, pushed out of work or unable to find jobs that would otherwise be able to find those jobs. Maybe they'll find jobs that are less paid, but we're going to have to have some kind of floor and also some kind of subsidy that can boost the incomes of people who are only able to find lower paid work. And I think that's, again, where UBI comes in. It's so key is that it achieves kind of both, that you're able to create this floor and that people don't fall through because it's going to everybody. And it's also able to to boost incomes. So let's let's talk about that more specifically then. So, you know, um, there's a variety of UBI proposals across the political spectrum from sort of a negative income tax approach to sort of left and right variations on universal basic income. So I wonder if you kind of want to detail for us some of the distinctions between those different positions and then give some um, indication as to where you fall and why that particular form of UBI you think is most effective. Yeah. So uh, we can cover, you know, just um, the difference between negative income tax and universal basic income. I think it's, a, it's an important one. So uh, negative income tax is, um, let's say, Somebody gets um, $12,000 a year, say $1,000 a month um, with their income that is zero. And then the more they earn, then the smaller their benefit gets until the point that they don't receive a benefit. And typically speaking, the traditional kind of phase out rates are, are around 50%. Uh, they can be lower than that, but like, you know, Milton Friedman spoke about 50%, and um, that was also for simplicity's sake, but it's kind of traditional. Um, the SSI that we have right now is essentially like that for those with disabilities. It's a 50% phase out rate. And, um, and that's where we almost passed under Nixon, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, under Nixon, that was, a, uh, it was called the Family Assistance Plan. And that was a 50% phase out rate. And it would have been towards families with kids. So it wouldn't have covered any adults without kids. And it was also, it had a, um, 
let's, I don't know, kind of, let's call it a soft work requirement where um, let's say if you were the um, primary male earner in the household back in the seventies, then um, if you weren't working, then the amount for you would be deducted from the whole and then, but your, um, your wife and kids would still get it. And then um, if um, the, the female caretaker in the household uh, was to not work, then she would continue to receive her portion uh, depending on the age of her kids. So if the kids were under six, she would continue to receive it. And if they were over six, then she would not. So it was kind of like a work requirement attached only to kids over age six. And then the kids would always receive the amount no matter what. So there, it was unconditional for them. So that was essentially a family assistance plan. And um, the negative income tax, as even Milton Friedman was asked about this, but the difference between UBI and NIT, and he said there are two different ways of, of doing the same thing. Um, you can create the same net outcome with a, an, an NIT and a UBI paired to the flat income tax. So you know if you have a 50% phase-out rate and you compare this to a UBI with the same amount uh, paired with a 50% flat income tax, then the outcome can be identical. Um, and that's not only outcome um, identical in, um, let's say, distribution, but also in cost. And that's what a lot of people don't quite get is that they might think NIT is cheaper than UBI, but it's not. It's like saying that it's cheaper to give someone $10 instead of to give them $20 and ask for $10 back. Like it's the same cost both in both instances. One person ends up with the ten dollars, and the other person ends up with ten dollars less. Um, so the NIT is really it's not phasing out. Um, in which case you think of it as cheaper. It's that you're applying a phase out tax. So a phase out tax is essentially a tax on you know the middle class. So like wherever anyone who's in the phase out range is the one paying the 50% tax. And that's a high marginal tax rate. Like it's a it's a 50% additional tax and in addition to whatever else that they're paying. And so that I think is a is a is a stronger disincentive to work than certainly a lower marginal tax rate. And if you're able if you are to uh, expand that out to everybody, then you can shrink that down a lot more. And so the way I look at UBI versus NIT is that a UBI can actually be done cheaper. Like you don't have to, you can spread out the tax more. So that's a lower marginal tax rate, which means that more people will work compared to the NIT. Um, but also there's less bureaucracy because an NIT requires you to vary the payment based on whatever income it is that there are either reporting on a monthly basis or reported like in a previous year. Um, and a UBI just applies the phase out at the back end. And so you just give everyone the same amount, that's no additional bureaucracy. And then on the back end on taxes, that's also no additional bureaucracy because you're already doing taxes. Whereas the negative income tax requires this additional um, bureaucracy on the front end. But and then that also introduces errors. There's also a big political difference, though, because yes, sending everybody a check every month is a lot politically stickier than some fiddling with the tax code. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I, I would say um, that there is certainly a political argument to be made for a ne negative income tax as being potentially politically more viable. 
like if people widely perceive it to be cheaper, if people widely perceive it as going more to those in need and not to those who don't, and that's what's more popular, then that could be a more politically viable option. Um, but it's not cheaper, and I wouldn't say that it's better. Um, I would argue that UBI is better, but an ID could actually pass, whereas UBI might not pass. But it, it could pass, but it could also be taken away because, the, as you said, if the constituency, if it's perceived as a means-tested program, that's a lot politically. It might be conceived, yeah, it might be yeah. conceived more as like welfare. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, uh, I, I think, kind of a hybrid kind of thing, which is also I, I like. And so I would like to point out like the way that the monthly child tax credit was done, uh, because this was a fully refundable tax credit. And people could opt into it and say, all right, I want monthly payments, or they could just receive it as a tax credit that reduced their total taxes um, you know, at the end of the year. And I, I think that potentially doing a universal basic income in that kind of way uh, is giving people the option of just reducing it from their tax burden or receiving the monthly payment um, could actually be um, effectively seen as like, not giving to those who don't need it uh, because we already do, you know, the standard deduction is a way of reducing everybody's tax burden and um, itemizing deductions is a way of actually uh, reducing the tax burdens of the rich more than everyone else. You know, that's actually regressive uh, tax deduction to do it that way. And if we were to do a, a, a standard universal credit instead of a deduction, then that would be a basic income. And then people who just, who opt in to the monthly payment could do that. Yeah, so so then let's let's focus in on your, the proposal that you see as sort of most effective in terms of uh, a UBI. You know, what, what does that baseline look like? Um, does it maintain, you know, existing um, social wef- welfare programs? Um, just some more details on what you see yeah. as sort of the most effective and viable forms of universal basic income. Yeah, uh, I'm very flexible in um, what I would like to see. I really just want us to start somewhere. So <laughs> um, like if I'm going to talk about like my optimal kind of um, plan, um, I would prefer that we actually start at the poverty line and, you know, whatever that is and say, okay, if poverty line is, uh, what is, I think currently $1,218, I think per month right now is the poverty line, then let's set the UBI at that. So we could actually effectively eliminate poverty. Um, actually, you know, I really like, um, Pagovian taxes, you know, I, I like this kind of tax on externalities, I like that if we're going to pull money out of the system via taxes, that we do it in the way that has the best uh, incentive structure and has the best uh, outcomes. You know, so let's like tax carbon. Um, let's potentially tax uh, land value instead of property and what's built on it. Um, I like uh, just doing like an automated tax on like every transaction. Uh, this could be like a very small tax and it's just, you know, fully automated and it's a consumption tax instead of an income tax. Um, like these kinds of things I think are, are, are what we can, 
can pair with the basic income. And I also think that deficit financing is is fine for some portion of the basic income, especially, again, in regards to automation, because we're talking about a deflationary force. So we want some amount of inflation to push against the deflation of automation. And uh, so I think that works well. I, I think another kind of creative way to go about this too is, um, you know, we could say, hey, the companies that are public that issue stocks, uh, companies like Amazon and, and Microsoft and these that are, you know, benefiting so much from automation, but also everyone in, in, you know, every public company in general, maybe they could issue a percentage of new stocks every year that go into, you know, a national permanent fund like Alaska. And so that way people would feel that what they're getting from basic income is somehow you know, their share of the overall productive economy, especially that's being amplified um, by automation. So like those are kind of some, you know, it, ways that I would go about kind of like an optimal uh, plan. But also if we just start with like a universal carbon dividend that's revenue neutral paired with, you know, an annually rising carbon tax, I would love that. Like we can just start small, and people would maybe get uh, to start like um, maybe like a $100 uh, like every quarter or something um, as their dividend from whatever the carbon tax is set at. And, you know, over time, it could grow and grow. And eventually people are getting, you know, a few hundred dollars a month or something from this, um, you know, the total carbon tax. Like, I like that. I, I think that's very effective. That helps us. That's a win-win situation. We're reducing poverty and reducing inequality at the same time as reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Like, um, I would love that. And also even, again, if we just look at the standard deduction and just say, let's just do some like boring tax reform and just say, instead of the standard deduction, let's do a standard credit and universalize that, make it fully refundable. Then that could be a small universal-based income Again, that people could opt, opt into, and maybe it's just a couple hundred dollars per month, but it's something. Same with like the child allowance, like starting with kids, that's something. Like anything that kind of just does more universal and gets this floor created that we can build off of is something that I'm for. Yeah, and our you know our experience during the pandemic, we we sort of in many ways had a trial run with a you know a momentary UBI, um, which you know showed that it could be largely effective. Um, and then the, the political discussion becomes, you know, sort of the, the content of this podcast series that we're doing, which is about work and the relationship between universal basic income and the question of work and whether or not we have a moral obligation to work, whether or not, you know, UBI uh, prevents people from seeking out employment. So, you know, I'd like to get your opinion on, you know, there's been a number of trial runs, not only in the United States, but elsewhere around the world about the relationship between UBI and um, pursuing work outside of a uh, UBI. Um, and so I, I want you to, to sort of give us some indication about the relationship between those two things. And, yeah. And just the context for that, I think, is also that actual UBI will never be a full replacement for the income that you could get from work, or at least not for the time being. And so, you know, the stimulative effect on people's work lives is not what people imagine. It's like, I'm just going to get paid to sit on my couch. No, you get right. paid a little bit. You can fix your front door and, you know, uh, repair your car and get to a job or something. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I like to explain basic income as this like missing foundation. You know, this is a this is a floor for income, and this is actually it empowers and enables people to seek out new forms of income or even seek out unpaid work as another option that's not available to them because you have to be able to afford to volunteer and afford to do unpaid work. Like it, I, it's a very you know pro pro work policy in the context of being fully voluntary. Like that's what it does is it makes work fully voluntary. And so if someone wants to only get a thousand dollars a month, like sure, some people will do that. Um, but a very like few people want to only spend a thousand dollars a month. Like just because that's what you get doesn't mean that that's where you end up. Like you definitely want to earn more money. Like again, we're in a 70% consumer economy. Like people want to spend money on stuff. You know, they there's so many more things people want to do in their lives than just buy food and pay rent. Like there's that's just a horrible existence to just have those basics. And we see from the evidence that that's that's how people use basic income. It's it's this uh it connects people to work. It enables them to find better jobs, it enables them to get to job interviews, it enables them the the um you know this reduced risk to actually start up a business and not fear the risk of failure and what that would mean for them and their families um over and over again like in the stockton experiment that was more recent we saw that um, full-time employment was actually doubled that of the control group um we saw from the the first you know, the years of the hudson pilot it's the same thing that employment has increased uh we see from the alaska dividend that um Part-time employment has increased 17% uh, as a result of the dividend and that there's been no decrease or increase in full-time employment. And I think that's an important uh, kind of detail too, because if you look at that and zoom in on that and why that is, it's that some people do work less as a result of having that dividend. Um, you know, if there's a $2,000 dividend and you have a five-person household, that's $10,000. Maybe that means that that me some member of that family can work a little bit less. Uh, but at the same time, that spending of that additional money then creates new jobs, which then people who are unemployed are able to find those jobs. And so overall, there's no decrease or increase in full-time employment, but you do see this increase in part-time employment. So like over and over again, you see these positive impacts on work. And I think that that's valuable to recognize, especially as we go towards a more automated future, where we want to make sure people have the resources. They want to make sure people have the capital, the security, um, and the spending power to make sure that that people can actually earn more money on top of the basic income. And if we don't have a basic income, it actually becomes much more difficult to earn an income um, because of the lack of spending and also what people fall to if they fall entirely through the safety net or even just receive typical welfare that has higher marginal tax rates, which reduces um, the ability to find employment. One of the <clears throat> issues that um, I have tried to emphasize in talking about UBI is its connection to the public policy concern about the old age dependency ratio. And you see now in France, the huge demonstrations against pension reforms. Uh, there are demonstrations in China, the CCP is trying to dial back pensions and old age benefits. So it's a global concern and we know that it's just gonna get more severe in the future. Um, I have tried to argue that UBI would be one of the potential political solutions to the intergenerational equity issue that if we 
we're able to convince seniors, and this this is the big if, if we're able to convince seniors to do a big reform that included uh, old age pensions like social security for all. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm for um, uh, you know the, the universalization of senior benefits. Have you thought about this issue much? Yeah, yeah, it, it's like, um, it's it's challenging on the one hand, um, it's it's helpful to be able to communicate social security for all, because then people can think, oh, well, this isn't like that much of a difference. And we're already doing this for seniors. We're already even doing this through um, supplemental security income, uh, which is administered by a social security uh, for those with disability. Like it's not unheard of. And yeah, we can just expand it. But then at the same time, there is this concern uh, whenever you touch some existing program, you know, what happens to it. It's even like the same thing with Medicare and Medicare for all, where people already receiving Medicare, are like, wait, 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 how would this impact Medicare? <laughs> like, I don't want them to have it if it means that I get less. And so that is a challenge when you're talking about, um, something in regards to an existing program yeah, and, and universalizing it. Uh, but I do think that there's certainly uh, there's certainly room to break out of this, you know, you can stop or not stop working uh, at a particular age and, oh, we have to increase the age because we're all living longer and that's a problem. Um, and again, this is, this is about like, making the labor market voluntary. And so if you if you make sure that people have a floor, then you're going to have even seniors choose to continue working if they want to. And you'll have some seniors deciding that that they want to retire. And same thing with those younger than the age of retirement, where you'll have some people choosing um, not to um, continue working uh, for money. Maybe they choose to do unpaid work too. But also you're going to have people who are unable to find work that are able to find work thanks to it. So there's there's um, certainly a way outside of this argument. And also even like in France, too, I think a lot of this comes down to, again, this economic insecurity kind of question um, where this, I think, was impacted uh, or re related to like the, the yellow vest movement, where if they just if people just had basic economic security, then they're not going to be so stressed out and worried about what this may or may not mean to them down the road. Like if the government says you're going to be okay, no matter what, then you're going to have less, you're going to have, you know, fewer, um, you know, riots, you're going to have less social breakdown um, and, you know, people in the streets and, and lighting things on fire and everything. Cause a lot of that comes down to, just insecurity of what my future is going to be, what my future is going to be for my kids. And I think that's just, just, it's missing. It's this, again, it's this missing foundation. Uh, we even see that like with, uh, with healthcare and with education. So again, as a missing foundation, healthcare is something that, you know, so many resources go towards treating poverty, treating inequality and insecurity, essentially treating the lack of basic income. So if you have a basic income, then we can actually spend fewer resources on healthcare, in which case universal healthcare systems would work better because they're not uh, spending so much resources on what they don't need to do now because of basic income. And with education, like we do so much, all these investments in education, a kid can go right through school and they're not able to focus on their studies 
their parents are always arguing, the, the household is very insecure, they go to school hungry, um, they can't focus on education. So we put all these resources into like educate kids, but then they come out of it and they just haven't learned everything they could. But if they have a, a secure floor, if their parents have a secure floor, then the resources we put in, in investing into kids' futures, they that actually goes further. Um, and I think that that's important to see too out of all this is that we're spending a lot of resources on a lack of basic income and we that, can actually make things work a lot of, better. That was the focus of Lula's uh, Familia Bolsa program, right? Which was to pay parents, to make sure their kids stayed in school. Yeah, yeah, that was a um, there was a condition on that. It was a conditional cash transfer based on um, on the conditions of of schooling, and I think even um, a vaccination as well for school. Um, and there's actually studies and looking at that and saying like, yeah, that has benefits, but also you have the unintended consequences of what happens when people lose the income because they didn't meet those requirements, and those uh, especially impact. Um, I believe it was little um, girls. And that also ha has happened in other programs as too that are conditional. Um, so again, it's like, we can think that we're encouraging something that we want. So like, let's give people money to go to school um, instead of making it unconditional. Uh, but then when you make it unconditional, then not only do parents choose to have their kids go to school, um, I was even just the, the most recent report from the the twelve year UBI pilot in Kenya has shown that like every kid is now in school um, thanks to the basic income and it's fully unconditional. They don't have to go to school, but they're all going, and therefore you don't get those impacts of what happens when they lose it. Uh, in which case, um, in there was a cash transfer study in Malawi comparing unconditional to conditional. And it found that the un the unintended consequence of removing income from those who didn't meet the conditions for school meant um, um, in increased uh, teen pregnancy rates and increased uh, AIDS rates uh, as far as HIV transmission because little girls would come out of uh, would lose an income and then they have to come up with income so then they sell themselves as as sex workers in order to help pay their their families. You um, <clears throat> hooked up with Andrew Yang relatively early on in his political campaign. And I just thought, could you tell us a little bit about that story? And um, he had a transformative effect on the political debate around UBI in the United States. Um, unfortunately, I don't see any interest in the Biden administration and very few political parties around the world have taken it up yet. But. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I would do. I definitely want to talk more about like what we witnessed in the pandemic and how that impacted things. But um, to talk about Yang first, um, yeah, we met. I believe it was either late 2016, early 2017, um, and this was uh, through the through basic income, and this was at a uh, conference. It was before the Economic Security Project was officially founded, or it was right afterwards, and before like the first big conference. And so it was like kind of a smallish group of us and maybe of like, um, I don't know, like 30 or 40 people or something like that, that I got together. And uh, that was when I met, I met, when I, I met him. And um, and then at, at some point later on, uh, I think it was later that year, he was uh, trying to think, you know, how, what can I do that will move this, move the needle on this the most? And whereas like I'm out there like writing blogs and, and, you know, trying to reach people on social media, 
his thinking was, well, there needs to be, you know, someone as a presidential candidate that's pushing this and, and that can be me. I can do that. So that's what uh, he decided to do. And I remember, so he, he, uh, we met together in uh, New Orleans before he uh, announced and he, you know, let me know that, uh, you know, that he was, he was looking to do that. And I was like, great. <laughs> like that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, it, it, I would, I just considered it a victory uh, for him to be able to reach the point of being on the debate stage. Like that for me would have been a huge victory on all on its own. Uh, but sure enough, it, his, his campaign just got a lot more energy than that. And not only did he make the debate stage once, but he made all debates, but one and, um, and yeah, created a whole lot of more energy in this movement, a whole, whole lot more people heard about it, learned about it, got excited about it. And I think uh, that was important for when, when the pandemic arrived, uh, for that conversation to be really kind of, let's say, warm. Um, there was just, we just jumped immediately to like, let's make sure and get people money. And, and that was, uh, you know, very welcome to see. Uh, I think that there's a few things, you know, I, I wouldn't say, as you said, Alec, uh, as you, Alec, said earlier, that, that we kind of tested it, like, we did and we didn't. <laughs> so there's a really interesting nuance, even in what we did and, and didn't do. And I think it's worth just getting into just a little bit. And it's that um, we, we boosted unemployment. And um, that was like a $600 per week boost unemployment. And we also expanded unemployment to gig workers. And uh, that in itself, I think, is really interesting that like we basically acknowledged that there was a whole group of workers who were left out of the unemployment system. And then we're like, let's go ahead and include them temporarily. <laughs> so that was like, uh, I think, an acknowledgement of the failure of the existing system for the current um, situation of work. And um, and that was very welcome. But also this boost um, went through the states because this is a 50 state system. So again, we got to see like some states, uh, people were a lot better off as far as how easy it was for them to utilize that system. And then some states found it extremely difficult. They were on, uh, on hold for hours at a time uh, or even weeks. They were waiting for potentially months to, to even get approved or get their first payment. Like it was kind of a nightmare at the same time as boosting unemployment. And then people actually looked at this and, and even thought of it as basic income, but also it's quite different to receive an unemployment income. And then you lose that when you get a job because you're unemployed and versus a UBI where that always stays with you. So there's, again, large marginal tax rate via welfare cliff drop off versus UBI, which does not create a disincentive at all. So that was one thing that annoyed me when people are like, oh, nobody wants to work. And it's like, well, we are doing like an unemployment system and not a monthly stimulus check, which is what I recommended at the time. So that was one thing. And uh, we did get three stimulus checks. Like, that's great. They were all different amounts. They were kind of random. Like we, we, at no point did we feel secure in knowing that we were going to get another check. So they were kind of just these one-offs. And they could have been like quite large too, um, uh, across like the whole families and everything. And um, I really wish that we just would have done like a smaller amount on a monthly basis throughout. And again, not had those, you know, um, marginal tax rate 
kind of impacts. The the closest and thing that I, that I was most happy with was child tax credit. Like six months of the monthly payment that averaged about $428 per household per month, that was close to a basic income. It covered uh, over 90% of all kids in the country. So that was essentially a basic income for kids. And all those, the the evidence from that was very positive. Um, all of it, like we would expected, like there was increased entrepreneurship, uh, of course, decreased poverty, um, improved nutrition. Uh, parents actually had to use, um, they, fewer parents were selling their blood plasma, um, which I think says a lot. Fewer parents were starting using, uh, uh, abusing drugs, which I think says a lot. Um, you know, just positive impacts across the board. Yeah. So, you know, it's fascinating. One of the things that you mentioned was the, and I didn't think about this until now, the sort of integration of gig workers into, in, all of a sudden we, we had this uh, collective realization that they are workers, but we're not going to give them full protections only during this specific event during the pandemic, right? And right. And delivering your food, they're essential workers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, and we took it away from them. That's what's so weird, too. Like, that we said, you need this. And then we're like, no, you don't. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, this is this is interesting to me, too, because, you know, even among uh, among left-leaning philosophers, there's sort of a debate about UBI and whether or not UBI itself is a kind of, um, it's a tool that can be used in terms of thinking about worker exit strategies, right? So now all of a sudden worker power increases because of you know the capacity to exit. But then there's this other concern of whether or not UBI sort of um, doesn't address some of the core issues as it relates to the sort of power differentials between workers themselves and, and employers. And so I want to I want to know how you think about UBI. Is it sort of this tool that allows for, you know, uh, worker power in terms of an exit strategy, or is there still more that needs to be done? You know, thinking about the classification of gig workers and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So uh, again, um, basic income was the foundation. And so it's something that that strengthens a lot of things and improves a lot of things and solves a lot of problems, maybe not entirely, but it does move it forward in some way. You know, it doesn't solve every problem. It makes every problem more solvable. And so when it comes to unions, it's like, you know, of course, we still need unions. Um, but without basic income, I think unions are actually, you know, fighting with one hide with one hand tied behind their back, basically. And uh, especially as automation ramps up and we're able to replace more workers, um, unions need to, I think, really start fighting for a basic income, um, not only for this aspect, like it makes it, uh, it, it provides individual bargaining power and individual bargaining power um, means that you actually also have more collective bargaining power. It's uh, if a union is an analogy of, um, you know, how a bundle of sticks is harder to break than one stick. Um, uh, someone with basic income is like an iron rod. And if you have a bundle of iron rods, that's a whole lot more harder to bend you know, than uh, just one rod and certainly more than sticks. So like you, a basic income for unions would be very strengthening as far as uh, functioning as, you know, people are less afraid of losing their jobs. So they're more likely to organize at work. Um, let's say they are able to not worry about the strike fund 
that would otherwise have to be large enough in order to last long enough for a successful strike to take place. Like now, a union could just strike immediately whenever it wants to, regardless of whatever it has in its strike fund. So that's like really important for any any worker. And also you've got different kinds of workers. So there's certainly those who are more who are more easily able to be organized thanks to the type of work versus other types of workers. So again, this goes to freelancers. Freelancers are much harder to organize and have any bargaining power. So it's even more important to have individual bargaining power so that you can even have some kind of union that wouldn't otherwise be able to make any demands. And also, I think it comes down to unpaid workers too. Like I think the labor movement needs to recognize the importance of unpaid care work in particular, and make sure that all these workers doing incredibly important work still have power, both um, at the individual level and at the employee level um, that you know doesn't exist. But like as as volunteers, it's really important to be able to say no to something. Like that that work should be fully voluntary. And if you're in a situation, you know, there's not only employee-employer relationships, but there's you know, domestic relationships where if, if, you know, it's entirely possible for someone to be doing the unpaid care work because of this differential in power and um, to be able to exit an abusive relationship uh, is extremely important. And I think unions should support that. I think they should support this, um, this informal care work as being valuable too. I think we all should, uh, especially as again, more automation, uh, unpaid care work, volunteering this is very human stuff this is people choosing to do stuff because they really want to versus demanding some kind of payment for it and that's something that is very purposeful and is very meaningful and i think is um provides a lot back uh you know contributes to society in ways that many unnecessary jobs and um socially harmful and environmentally destructive jobs don't I mean, this goes back as far as I know to like Gompers and the CIO that, you know, should you should unions fight for universal benefits or should they tell workers you're only going to get this if you join our union and fight in this shop, you know, and it's I understand why they made that choice, but I, I wish they right. hadn't. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a then a an understanding that dignity extends beyond the, you know, employer employee relationship and right. that the social reproduction of society is also dependent on all this other work that goes unseen. I mean, this is the wages for housework movement, um, you know, um, pushed on this. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a very helpful way of framing that, you know, sort of, this is a, a key component of human dignity. So um, I want to give you a chance to, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I wanted to give you a chance to, to think a little bit about some of the, the core values, since I'm a philosopher after all, and this is a, a philosophy podcast, you know, what are some of the core values other than, you know, a, a concern for human dignity that you see as undergirding a basic yeah. income? Um, I, I think that one of the things that I, that are, I think is particularly powerful and not really discussed um, in the basic income conversation is just trust. And I think that we exist in a society that's based on distrust like we do not trust people we that's why if you were to ask a group of people you know how many people would stop working if they provided a basic income you know most of those people's hands are going to go up um and if you ask them you know if they're going to keep working 
you know, and, and, you know, to lower their hand, if they're going to keep working, then pretty much everyone lowers their hands. Like we all think that other people somehow need to be forced to do something, but then we ourselves are entirely different because <laughs> we trust ourselves. We don't trust other people. And there's no demonstration of trust in society. Like all of these are built on conditions. You always have to prove yourself first. You have to do this or that or this or that before you get some kind of assistance, before you get some kind of, you know, recognition of your dignity and, and rights. And, you know, it, it's all based on this distrust. So if you create a society that says, all right, I trust you unconditionally, um, you should have access to what you need to survive regardless of anything that you do, uh, because you are important as a human being, and I'm not going to force you to do anything to exist. Like you don't have to do work to eat and sleep indoors. I trust you with this amount of resources. Um, if you do that, then you create a society of more trust. And I think that we are looking at this, at this complete erosion of, of social cohesion and a, a large part of it is this distrust. Um, there's this, it, it, first of all, there's some evidence for the trust part that I, Finland, the Finland pilot actually looked at trust and they even broke it down to the three different kinds. So they broke it down into um, trust of politicians, trust in each other and trust in uh, the courts. Uh, so like institutions and all three increased. So trust increased across the board just because you were demonstrating trust in people. And then on the um, opposite side, the, there is an interesting study. Um, I believe it came out of, uh, was it Indonesia? Um, I can't remember for sure. But this, they looked at uh, what happened like on the on the edge of where someone qualifies or doesn't qualify for assistance. And so if you, if you, barely qualified for assistance, then your trust in government increased, let's say, one point. And then if you were on the other side of it and you barely didn't qualify, then you got and you got nothing, but you definitely needed help, then your distrust in government increased 10 points. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now is that we're seeing a lot of people who need help who need this security that they're lacking. There's there's kind of chronic insecurity and mass insecurity that's um, helping erode uh, social cohesion. And so I think that if you have this floor, this floor of trust that says, I trust you, that we're going to create a society where there's more trust. And I think that society um, looks a lot better uh, across the board um, in, in social cohesion and everything else that we are losing kind of a sense of community. And I think that's even leading into this kind of feeding into this like drive for misinformation. I think it's feeding the polarization. I think it's feeding even, you know, the more extreme like tendencies of, of authoritarianism. Um, I, I think that all kind of ties together. Just on that point, uh, one of my big fears during Trump was that Steve Bannon would have actually had more influence on his policies. And you know, if Trump had been sending a, a thousand, even a hundred dollar check every month to people with his you know face on it or something, I think it could have been incredibly politically powerful. But the Republicans have never been able able to get past this idea that expanding government programs is bad. So, 
<laughs> yeah, it was really interesting to see Trump uh, so interested in the stimulus checks. Like, you know, say what you want about him, but he recognized that's something that people like. And sure enough, people loved it from him. And sure enough, he was smart enough to like say, hey, I'm putting my name on everything. I want to make sure to sell this. And so even like to this day, you can ask a, a, a Trump supporter uh, what they thought of the stimulus checks. And they'll say like the first two were great, you know, because they were from Trump. Uh, but then like Biden's was the one that suddenly like caused inflation and all these bad things um, that it, so it's just kind of funny how the even someone who just depending on their view of Trump can like or dislike certain stimulus checks and not others. Um, and it was also interesting too politically to see that this conversation around a stimulus check um, really won or lost Georgia. Um, it was Trump embraced it. And McConnell said no. Uh, Republicans pushed against it. And those in Georgia, instead of embracing it and saying, you know, instead of both sides saying they're going to make sure the stimulus checks pass no matter what, you have the Republicans saying no and the Democrats saying yes. And if you look at the polling, that created enough of a difference. Like it was a two or three point difference, um, which won it for Democrats. So, like, that was uh, Republicans shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, for just being against something that they should have known was very popular because of Trump liking it and marketing it. Continuing on this thread, um, and then I think, you know, this maybe can be a rounding out of our discussion here, but um, to put on your political analyst hat for a moment, you know, what what do we do to get there, right? So how do we get there? What is the momentum that needs to be created politically? You know, we're we're unable to provide universal health care right now. So the, the, yeah. the question yeah. of UBI feels far away, but, you know, think uh, tanks, what, what needs to be caucuses done? and legislation. You know, what, what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. That's the uh, the twelve hundred dollar a month question. <laughs> um, I think that that. I've always thought the automation really kind of opens up this conversation and I think that we're seeing that again. Uh, I've certainly been witnessing that. I like I I make sure to kind of keep track of the discussion on social media, uh, on Twitter, like every day to kind of get some feel of what people are talking about when it comes to basic income. And um, post ChatGPT, it's uh, suddenly just a, a giant rebirth of discussions about AI and the impact of automation and worries about unemployment and and all of that. Um, so that's new. What's, what's also new is that there's so much, um, there's so many replies about basic income. And so uh, I say replies because like years ago, people would, let's say, just tweet about basic income and unemployment or something. Whereas now people are replying to other people's tweets about uh, unemployment and automation that doesn't mention basic income. And they say, we need basic income. So it's like people know about it and they want to inject it in the conversation organically instead of articles either including or excluding this stuff and you know basic income being part of the conversation or not. Like basic income is definitely more part of the conversation and people are really talking about it a lot more. And so I think that's great and important. And I think that that's really what's going to drive this is that people are worried about themselves. You know, if, if if you looking at this from like a welfare kind of standpoint, some kind of assistance standpoint, you think oh, I don't need that. 
that's for them. You know, welfare is for them. Unemployment is for them. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to need assistance in any way because I'm making all the right choices. And, you know, it's because of people making wrong choices that they end up needing assistance. Automation kind of breaks through that. It, it says that I don't even need to make the wrong choice. I may lose my job. And so what do I want to be there to help me? Do I want this bureaucratic conditional system that makes me jump through hoops and, and treats me without any dignity? Uh, do I want that? Or do I just want essentially a dividend? And I think that the dividend framing could be very powerful because it breaks through that and says, look, you deserve this. This is that you like a stockholder of a corporation. You're getting this passive income as your return. And the return is from the capital that you actually created and that made the AI possible. Like all these large models are essentially trained on the internet. They've been trained on all of the text. They've been trained on the books that have been collected over you know centuries. This is from Wikipedia. Um, uh, the programs like Midjourney uh, and Dolly are from all the images and all the art that's been created. Um, all the 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 uh, the text to music AI that's through all the the songs, the the music, and everything that's been created. And I think people should look at that and say, we are the ones that made that possible. It was it was our work that went into that. And so because it was our work, then we should receive our share of the overall productivity increases. And I would prefer also, when you asked me earlier about details about basic income, optimal policy for me ties the basic income to GDP per capita, to some measurement of overall productivity, so that as AI continues to grow productivity, as automation eliminates jobs, the floor continues to rise. So we'll start, maybe we start with just a $500 per month basic income, but like 20 years from now, um, adjusted for um, the, the same 2023 dollars instead of $500 that would have grown to maybe 1500 or 2000 or I don't know what it'll be at that point, all depending on productivity growth. But I think that that's how we should see it, is that as overall productivity increases, we should all be better off that, you know, machines should be literally working for all of us. And a dividend is how to actually frame that and make it clear that it is for all of us and all of us equally. Yeah, I think framing it in that way such that people can understand that this is it isn't even a free handout, which I, I worry right. sometimes is one of the biggest fears. It isn't a free handout because you have actively contributed to this thing that you now are entitled to receive, which I think that framing needs to be key to get over that hump of sort of feeling like this is something that's just simply a handout. Or Yeah, yeah. And also there's the inheritance framing too, because again, it's, it's funny when people say, oh, you know, we can't give someone money for nothing. And it's like, well, do you believe in inheritance? And they'll be like, well, yeah. It's like, well, that's money for nothing. Like that's just being born to the right family and getting to choose that. And so, you know, we exist in this world where the technology, the state of technology right now has been built on the shoulders of giants, where it's been built generation after generation after generation. And it does not make sense at all for someone to be born in the certain time right now and just fortunately become, you know, a billionaire thanks to the technology that exists now that wouldn't exist otherwise. Like all of this is because of all of this previous work and we should see that too as being this is our inheritance like all of us have inherited some right to 
this technology that is so capable now, that is only capable to this degree because of all the people who are no longer alive and that that we should be should see as um, those we inherited this from. Fantastic. Well, there's a whole nother conversation to be had about um, capitalism and micropayments. We were talking about that just before you came on, you know, the idea of the administrative nightmare of trying to figure out how to give, you know, 0. 0.0001 cent to an artist because their mm. image was included in stable diffusion or whatever, versus putting income into a UBI or something like that, which would make a lot of sense. So, but yes, yeah. absolutely. I love that idea. So this has been great, Scott. Um, tell the listeners where they can follow your work. Yeah, so you can find my uh, blog at scottsantons.com. Uh, I have a UBI FAQ there um, that answers a lot of typical questions. And uh, I also recommend following me on Twitter at Scott Santons. And I have a pinned thread there, which is up to like 85 parts now, which is just, it's all evidence for basic income, um, all with citations to uh, academic papers to learn more about the actual evidence for this. You're an inspiring model of uh, an engaged public intellectual, which we don't have enough of these days. So, Thanks, yeah. thanks. And I, I guess one other thing I should mention too, I'm I'm terrible at doing this, by the way, is just that, you know, I have a book out there. It's called Let There Be Money. So if people want to learn more about basic income, um, then that's always a good option too. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. Very much appreciate it. Thank you, Alec. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.